what his parents thought The bell changed on the day he headed off to school He became a household name breaking all the Good morning to this another wonderful edition of What's New in Wagyu. Again, my name's Stephen Wolf. I'm here to guide you through this lovely podcast for the day. Today we've got a kind of an interesting take on Wagyu. So most of our chefs tend to want a medium, if not a small ribeye, because it's easier for portion control. And sometimes that is, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Sometimes that's a little, seems a little bit outside of what we're developing for. We like to develop a longer animal that has longer ribeyes and New Yorks and and things like that. But when we get a longer animal, it tends we have to have a little bit bigger animal. And then when we have a little bit bigger animal, then our ribeyes and things get a little bit more on the size of large than moderate, right? Yeah, and, and I I'm gonna tell you right now, guys, if you're selling to regular people, there's not a lot of people that can eat a large. 20 plus ounce ribeye they can share it with their wife and a kid or two probably and be okay but yeah, i can eat about four to six ounces of rich full wagyu beef at a sitting and that's the thing guys everybody forgets that this this is a a rich buttery flavor we're not we're not in this game to produce something that isn't rich buttery and full flavored correct so the rib shape to me is very important mainly because I want an animal that has a flat long back and I also want an animal that's tall enough to be able to travel in the country we put it in we have to deal with snow here so they have to be tall taller really to be able to walk to and from over some drifts get to their food during the winter months the problem we run into with some other people is that they've brought in, you know, when I kill a Wagyu, it isn't uncommon for it to weigh 1,200, 1,300 pounds hanging. It's also not uncommon for our, our animal to be almost touching the floor. Well, most of the time they touch the floor if we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to cut them, in, you know, and, and make two pieces out of them. That's where I've no I know I've hit an extreme because very very I haven't seen anybody else's wagyu come in that are near that big they aren't but on the other side we haven't seen anybody come in that marbles like ours well and that's the benefit we have is is that I'm so far ahead of the marbling game that most people are going to have a hard time they're going to have to spend 10 years plus to figure out what we're doing right now because we breed animals, there are certain animals bred every year that their sole purpose in life is to go visit Lane one day. That's, you're making me the Grim, grim Reaper. He is. Wagyu. They, they haven't realized he's the Grim Reaper because we have a, two guys that run our kill truck yet. So they run the kill truck so Lane doesn't have to be out there. But I think if the Wagyu saw him out there enough, they may not like him anymore. That's probably true. So now you you know we've discussed rib shape. Lane, I need you to talk to him a little bit about the value added cuts with Wagyu. 
about the thing is, is if your meat cutter needs to be able to pull some of these cuts out um, that the Japanese do, like the Zubicon, uh, that's really just a little muscle underneath the blade, but it's really tender, it's really nice, and and it's hard to get to, and it's hard to find the tra training. You have to really search YouTube to understand where it comes from and how to pull it out and things like that. And some other things like... Uh, so caps and lifters, guys. I've seen a lot of these going in people's grinders. Caps, Why? Caps and lifters are wonderful. And especially if you can get a chef or somebody to do some kind of appetizer with them or things a roll or whatever they're wonderful me and lane usually cut them into steaks and take them fishing with us off of off of the cattle we process for ourselves because they're just the perfect size to cook when we get home for a long day of fishing and you get a good high quality high marbled piece of meat um some of the some of the things that are that we use which are both uh what I cut and a, cur cut a cooking method, uh, asabuco, for instance. I love asabuco. It's probably one of my favorite dishes that I have regularly. Once a week at my house, it is cooked. And then, and then some of the things that we've done, which are a little unconventional, like cutting uh, rounds to carne asada. So, and that's where you guys are going to either make or break your money, right? You know, you're going to get a little more money for carne asada, a little more money for stew meat, a little more money for fajita meat. You're going to make more money doing that than grinding it and selling it for hamburger for six bucks. Or or round steak. Or right? round steak, yeah. Right. Um, another one that, that I like that <laughs> makes Steve cringe is cube steaks from time to time. There are there are some people who like to do that. Now, and it makes a wonderful cube steak, but... And now there's... I, I have only one exemption for cube steaks. Old people. Old people <laughs> and country fried steak. There you go. Uh, chicken fried chicken steak. Chicken fried steak, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Th those are the two passes I will give. Maybe even Salisbury steak. Like, I can pass that, but I have such a hard time when Lane starts putting them in through that freaking cuber. Oh... It just like breaks my heart. It's one. It's weird. I don't. You want to hear something weird? We had a set of customers one day bringing a, a decent F1, right? Probably yeah. one of the better F1s we've seen. They wanted the ribeyes ground to hamburger because it tasted better. Because it tasted better. <laughs> but those are the things I'm talking about, guys. Like, like you're gonna run into things that you're just like, wow. Like that's that's special. And and it is what it is. I remember escorting you out of the shop that day. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to talk to the customer, which they're my friends. That's the, the worst part about it. They're some of my long-term friends in this industry. And they come to my shop and want a rib complete both sides. They wanted it that and the strip loin ground into hamburger. Just, oh, man. I, it was just one of those things I had some problems with. So, Lane... How does labeling affect your product? Some of the things that we do 
just don't label yeah. the USDA, right? Yeah, but but what I'm saying is is these guys are out there. Uh-huh. They have the option to use a shop label, or they could go out and make their own labels of their own design and nature. How how over your experience, all of the experience that you have, have you seen labeling affect the way a product is sold? Oh, your labeling has to be, and we're not talking just about the cut of the the cut of the meat. We're talking about your brand. Yep. Your how you're represented, um, like our. Uh, so we have an elite Western premium beef. Elite Western Wagyu Full Blood product, mm-hmm. Elite Western F1 5050 product, yeah. which we've never labeled anything. We it's still yet. got. I, I, we just don't do it. We built the label because we thought we were thinking about maybe one day using it. But we also did a premium beef label, which we have used. Yes, and we could we could even do a premium grass-fed beef correct also right? we have those options through our butcher shop but what we're do what i'm saying is is your label represents you every time that customer opens their freezer exactly and when and if it looks good it looks professional it looks uh they take it out and they have a barbecue and their friends come over they're gonna say where where'd you get that i can't find that in any store and we use a sticker label so they can peel the sticker off the package because we use plastic packaging and send it or just cut it off, you know, cut that patch of plastic out and send it home with their friends. There's a phone number on it and where to find us. Yep. But you don't want to do it haphazardly. No. And it needs to have some thought and it's your brand. It's what people are going to know you for. So you will never see subpar product branded under my full blood Wagyu brand. No. If it is even off in color, I won't allow the sticker to be put on it. And that will probably be unpackaged and processed into ground beef. And remember, guys, if someone tells you they've never produced a bad carcass, that means they've never produced many carcasses. I have some carcasses that we've pushed through that have met every criteria that I talk about. And they just weren't great. They were they were better than Angus, and their melting points were good, but they weren't to my standard of labeling. And a lot of times that becomes hamburger, because I just cannot, I cannot. And sometimes Lane finds a home for it. Like sometimes Lane will find some guy that'll buy it for us, and. And he and he's good like that. That that's one one advantage of having a shop is Lane gets to talk to people and knows what people are looking for out in the community. But anyway, that's very important. So how about truth in labeling, Lane? Truth in labeling. It's it's the same thing, Steve. If you lie in your labeling what reputation do you want right and here's the problem that me and lane see all the time we've got wagyu beef did you know you can buy wagyu hamburgers at wendy's arby's it's arby's arby's Arby's. okay yeah that has an f1 blended in with a old cutter and canner there you go 
but but it's not just that we have people that come and bring animals to our facility that have sold an animal as wagyu to someone else and it may be 50 50 maybe maybe and we, I'm not going to sit there and ask him for his DNA and have him verify his DNA because that's not, you know, my label's not going on it. My label requires DNA verification. When I started my branded program, that was one requirement that we had. And anybody who sells us Wagyu that we approve to be sold to us, we get their DNA. We get their... We work. have to have DNA. We run our own DNA. And then we run DNA when it's cut. And if it doesn't meet the standard? Doesn't get labeled. That's what I'm talking about. You have to control your name, your brand, and what you stand for, or somebody's going to take advantage of it. And more times than not, it's you taking advantage of a product that you could be making good money on if done the right way. So when people are talking about butcher shops I have one thing that me and Lane have ran into a few times uh, with a past employee when she was doing it to us instead of taking the time and peeling the tenderloin with the brioche on the end they were hacking it off with bandsaw as Lane explained it to me and giving us two pieces the brioche and the tenderloin tail essentially we need to make sure if we're going to sell this in big pieces, even if you're going to have it cut into medallions for steaks, have it pulled out whole. Don't don't lose half of it or a piece of it because people have made a bad, terrible cut. Yeah. And some of that is training. Some of that is... Uh, Laziness. Complacency. Complacency. Lane calls it complacency. I call him lazy. I, I'm nicer than he is. There's a reason Lane gets to be there every day and I can only visit... <laughs> there, we have a rule you better talk to Lane before you complain to Steven because it's going to be bad if you just complain to me yep. uh, and, and, but, but those are the little things guys you know you want to make sure that your carcasses if they're having to be quartered are quartered appropriately because you could lose loin you could you lose ribeye you could lose you'll lose some either way and we've tried it some different ways just experimenting over there what's the best way and things and we, we haven't been able to come up with a better place or better way to splitting it than the traditional um, U.S. breaking point between the 6th and 7th vertebrae down from the, from the tail. And Lane's tried quite a few things, and, and mainly because I'm, I breed and make cattle that are too big for his rail. And that's the truth, right? Like, when you have an animal that's 1,300 pounds, imagine how long that animal is, and then he's relaxed. Yeah, and then and then we have to cut them, cut them and split them when they're, they're warm, and so they're not set and things, and so you have meat poach, and, there, there's and a just, lot of it's things. just some things we have to account for after um, when we're processing, and and it all equals waste. Yep, and that's the big thing in Wagyu. I have slowly let Lane now be in charge of a lot of our sales. It's It's been hard for the last like month letting Lane do this because I've handled 100% of our sales since we started. And I told Lane, 
Wagyu sale, selling Wagyu is easy. And he goes, well, I need a price set. How do I do this? I go, Lane, remember, we need to make all of our money from between the shoulders through the sirloin, including two briskets. So for any of you that don't know your cattle, you know, anatomy, that is ribeyes, New York's, tenderloins, tenderloins sirloins, sirloin tips. And tri-tips. And tri-tips. And two briskets. And two briskets. That's where all of our money is made. And that, anything else is uh, gravy. Anything else is pure profit. So if you can get everything sold in those sections because you have long, deep, big ribeyes and those things, it does make it easier to sell hamburger if you have to kick it out for a cheaper price. And we've kicked it out for cheap. There's a lady that did... Uh, Lions Club, no, Elks Lodge. Yeah, Elks Lodge. And she'd come and, heck, we gave it to her for, what was it, four bucks a pound? Yeah, I gave it to her four bucks a for, pound. For patties, you know, and, and Wagyu. The big, and the big reason was that she was doing it for a good reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. We and, Our cost was like $4 into it, I think, or $3 and some change total. And she was happy to have it. And it wasn't hurting us? Nope, it didn't hurt us. We made our money back. And but only because Lane, you know, because like I explained to Lane, we made all of our money off of our primals. Don't shortcut yourselves. Don't don't cheapen your product by not finishing it and aging it appropriately. And when I say aging it, maturity-wise. Correct. Make sure that it's old enough to even be killed. Yeah, because we're processing our Wagyu at three days after slaughter. Correct. We do not, you know, if I could get away with it, Lane would flash cool it instantly and he'd be cutting it the same day. But that world doesn't exist. Yet. Yet. <laughs> don't worry. I hear there's some cool technology coming out of the Asian market that will help people do this. But that's what I'm saying, guys. You, you don't need to sit this Wagyu in somebody's cooler for months or for 30 days or 20 days or 14 days. Heck, if it goes a week, I get a little nervous sometimes. If your chef wants it dried aged, they have their own dry aged coolers and they can do it, dry, themselves. Do it themselves. My job is to provide fresh meat, fresh not aged, but fresh, unspoilt meat to the market. And freezing does not hurt meat. I think there's a big misconception that says if you freeze this meat, it's going to be terrible on the backside. And it, it changes it. I'm not going to say it doesn't change it. Yeah. But it's not going to ruin it. No. It's better than rotting... <laughs> Like, it's better than, you know what I'm saying? It's better than dry aging it in our cooler, taking the loss on our side when a chef knows where he wants it in his dry age process. Exactly. Exactly. I get real leery when people start talking about, oh, I have a couple, I know a couple people that have a have a very, you know, very nice facilities from Texas to, to, to Florida, and they've been telling me that they've gone, they're going to a fresh product for Wagyu, and they're using a... Uh, infused packaging material so that they can ship fresh for 30 days. And I, it scares me to death because I'm going to tell you right now, there's nothing you can do. I don't care what product you're putting it in. That meat will taste different the day you cut it and the day that that person gets if it's truly 30 days fresh. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, too, what people have to realize is as soon as you put that knife in the jugular of the animal, 
and it goes through the hide and the hair and what dirt's in there and stuff that automatically sends that bacteria throughout the carcass steve throughout yeah. the carcass it's just like and a so vacuum it's, hose. so it's so you put it i don't care what you put it in for 30 days and you may have a more controlled growth than not but you're going to increase your bacteria and and count. what they're saying in a lot of this fresh packaging is that it's nitrate based and that's not good either no no we've we've fought the nitrate battle for years um the industry in the united states has kept requiring the nitrate uh restrictions to back off more and more and more in the hog processing and in um processed meat processing and stuff um to next to nothing and uh that's nitrates i mean they're a good preservative but they're not good for you right well, Let's be honest. And, and, it's, and this is the thing that I, I worry about when I see these fresh meat programs. What happens when people start buying this fresh product and then they, they get to a point where they're leaving it unfrozen at home in a fridge? That's what scares me. Like, mm. if Lane's going to put something in a bag and wet age it for somebody, which he's done from time to time... I at least know somebody's checking on it and verifying that it's not running away with its bacteria level. I worry that a lot of the end consumers don't have the knowledge, the ability, or the common sense sometimes to make sure that what they're eating is safe. Even the chefs we work with. Do. Right. You know, we have they, some they, chefs that I question every time we drop stuff off. Because they, they're good at cooking. And everything else is hearsay. Yeah, and here's the problem. Some of the best chefs I know have the most speculative conversations with me I've ever heard because they heard something from a chef, from a chef, from a chef on Facebook. And yeah. they're like they're like high school cheerleaders, guys. It's the truth. I know there's some chefs listening to this, and you're going to get mad with this comment, but you are. You guys sit, and you talk amongst yourself, and you gossip, and then somebody says some wild thing and you all take it out and say it's gospel and then you have to one day go dang it maybe that wasn't the truth i know a chef that will take me 200 days and then serve it to people that's that's rough like i don't care what you put in that i will not be eating that meat so Lane, we've seen some reds, some blacks, and some red blacks come through the through the shop. Mm-hmm. As a sole meat producing breed, which ones come out with the best carcass quality, value, and return? The best one we ever had was red black. Red black will give you the best of all worlds. But overall, I'd have to say the blacks. The blacks do have an overall better carcass quality. Probably because we have them so long and feed them so much, but it's just a different kind of carcass. And when you have red blacks, you get the best of both worlds most of the time. And part of that time, part of that too, Steve, is I think is we our genetics on the reds are so 
lacking, right? Yeah, and, and here's we have a lot more to choose from and combinations to work with with the blacks, which we have for a long, long time, or the industry yeah. has for a long, long time. But we've only had so many. And the problem with the Reds is is there's too much speculation going on. Lane, look, you know, Lane and me talk about red genetics a lot, and the reason we produce the best carcasses probably in the country when it comes to red cattle is that we don't use certain original Combinations. bulls yeah. ever. There's certain ones we don't ever use. That's true. And there's certain ones we'd never breed together. Like like we are very adamant and very careful and that's why we use embryo transfer because we can guarantee ourselves a higher probability of a better outcome with the knowledge that we've gained and the data that we've collected and and listening to people who were creating good animals when we started. I've got a cow that we brought home from collection and she is well over 2,000 pounds. And people are going to go, well, why would you want a cow that big? Because I sell meat for a living. That's why. That's why. Yep. And she brings us some of the most beautiful carcasses you'll ever see in the, in the red industry. Then we mix her with bulls like Master Chef and Tambo and Red Emperor. And we bring more marbling to her already great marbling. And then people go, well, why do you use that animal? And my favorites, when I have another breeder in the industry, come and tell me that there's bulls that you should never use. And that cow is full of all those bulls. If anybody tells you to never use Kalinga Red Star, I would turn and walk away from them instantly. Because they have never killed an animal. And that that's the thing, guys. Um... We're coming from a database of experience of cows killed, what happens to them, what makes a good Wagyu carcass. Um, some carcasses failed miserably. And we've made some bad ones. Not like yeah. super terrible bad, not like Angus bad, but bad enough that I wasn't very proud of them. And, you know, we Our put this together and, and there's yeah. some bulls we just won't use right now that are kind of the industry um people are pushing them yeah it's the the jargon right now right it's uh the fad the fad and we will not we don't play the fad game because that's how you go out of business in the cattle industry you start jumping on to bulls that have zero carcass data or if you go hey can i look at your carcass data and they're like well look at the ebvs do you know how many sets of EBBs that we have brought into our shop on animals that we have we have raised that said that they should be like the leanest non-marbled animal and they turn out to be some of our best carcasses? And then again, patience. Seen it the other way. Patience. Yeah. But we have seen it the other way. Yeah. You know, I've brought some 151 carcasses in that I have been nothing but disappointed in. I've seen some L10 carcasses that I have been nothing but disappointed in. And remember, I'm we're killing for a lot of people in a lot of different places. Some of it may be their practices, but I've never seen a good L10 carcass yet. And in the Reds, I've never seen a good Tamaru carcass. I've seen one that looks like an Angus carcass. I've seen some Shugmaru that looks the same way. But if you're breeding for structural soundness and, and confirmation only, Shugmaru is a good choice. 
you know, that's the problem, guys. You're buying animals a lot of times from people who have never fed and killed full blood Wagyu. And 80% of all the information that's being packed into the databases, such as the American Wagyu Association, the Australian Wagyu Association, the Akaushi boys down there in the Akaushi Association, even the proprietary stuff that Legendary has, it's all done on F1 carcasses. I do not trust F1 data on full blood breedings. Well, you can't. There's too They're many out. genetic variations that can happen because of the F1, right? And, and Lane's killed enough F1s to realize that they're they're an inferior product to full blood. They are. But they're a good option above Angus. Yeah, I mean, if I'm uh, out there growing, com- raising commercial cattle, and I want to improve the general overhaul quality of my herd, I'm going to bring in really good Wagyu semen or bull, and the offspring will be better than what they had. They can improve their their offspring, their steers and their heifers, and fetch a better price at market than full blood Angus or Hereford. Well, yeah, or, and think about this, guys. You go out and you buy you a ten thousand or five six thousand dollar Angus bull. There's not a lot of you know CAB is going to give you a little money, but Right now, Wagyu has enough people looking for it. There's a lot of good good buyers out there that will pay you a premium to have Wagyu in your herd. And if you say, oh, I hate the way black Wagyu look, you need to come look at my herd bulls. Well, that's just kind of like uh, the people next door dairy farm say, I don't like the smell. And the dairy farmer says, well, it smells like money to me. Right. Right? Right. And here's another thing, you know, say you want to say you don't like the, the black wagyu because of the way they look. The red wagyu look good, but not all of them are going to marble like you want. So again, it goes back to genetics. You've got to buy a good genetically sound bull to produce this F1 carcass. And Lane has seen that one firsthand where they went out, they bought the cheapest thing they could get their hands on. And I, I again, most of the Holsteins we kill would be far exceeding this these F1s. They would not, uh, in the normal um, grading scenario, we've had those type of animals that the people were expecting them to go prime would not even grade select. So, And, and that's a letdown to them, and I feel bad, and I don't at the same time. Because some of these people have called us. We told them, you know, you want to look for these things. And they go out and they buy the cheapest thing from the most unscrupulous person they know. Or found on KSL. Or online. At the time, they didn't really know they were unscrupulous, Steve. Right. And then they call and ask me. And I go, oh, well, that's your first problem. Because I always ask, where did these come from? Correct. And I've taught Lane to do that. Where did these come from? So that he can tell me where they came from so that I can prepare him for what he's probably going to see. Yep. That way he can prepare his speech. Ma'am, your steer didn't turn out. I'm sorry. Because I can, I'm getting to the point now we can jump on our, our database and we can give you a very... Not, it's not 100%. It never will be because genetic variation happens. 
and especially in F1s, but we can give you an idea if you're going to have a better carcass than you would have by just breeding another random bull to the, to the system. Yep. So the last thing we're going to cover today is data is only as good as the collection process and the person collecting that data. And or collecting the proper data. Yeah, there you go. That's another problem, right? Collecting proper data is a huge one in this game. What data do you guys collect? I want you to think about that. You know, we have data that we collect at breeding. I know how many embryos of each cow stuck in our recip herd. And from that, I can get a general idea of maternal trait for my cow. Then when that calf is born, we weigh the calf. We, we put an ear tag corresponding to his mother so that we know who he belongs to. Then we have an ear tag. On the ear tag also has who his real mother is and father. His Wagyu parent, because we do a lot of recip cows. Then we weigh the calf. So we know what he was when he was born. And we've had 35 pounders. We've had the big ones. Like, we've had it all. But then, at weaning, we weigh him again. And then when they go in the feed yard, they get weighed again. And then they're weighed multiple times between ration counts at the feed yard. So we know their average daily gain. And then from there, we kill them. And Lane weighs them again. And then I take samples of caudal fat. And then I take... You know, appropriate pictures. Appropriate pictures. Measurements we, when we need them. And then we have third-party designation a lot of time on, on the carcass grade. Like, you have to be able to collect all the data as if you were a scientist. I want you to remember back when you watched Bill Nye the Science Guy and follow the principles thesis of biology. You, you've got to use all of the necessary tools to make the product in which you are collecting data on effective. And I've gone as far as having Lane collect data on F1s. And you've got to let the data take you where it takes you. Right. And not excuse it because it's, you know... Um, it's not where you want it to be. Yeah. I will tell you the first carcass we ever killed, now that I look back on it, if it was me today looking at that carcass, I would have said, what on earth were you people doing? But we did eat that one. We did. We did. You did. And, but, we, and it was fun. And it was there, fun. Right? Yeah. But now that we're in this so deep... I would look back if somebody brought me the same quality carcass as that carcass. I would ask them, what on earth are you doing? What have you done to fail this animal's genetics? And I know what our problem was. He didn't like to eat grain. No, he didn't. He, he was terrible about it. He wouldn't eat it. We put a friend in with him. His friend would eat it all. Just some random some random steer. We should have ate that one instead of the one we ate. But he just wasn't effective in the feedlot. And if you run into that, I've learned now, it's just as easy at that point in time if he's not going to comply with the standard of the feedlot and eat. Harvest him early. You harvest him early and you sell him as a premium product rather than a Wagyu product. 
There's going to be people that wash out of every system. Every system, no matter how big or small, you have a washout factor. And those are the things with the management and husbandry that you have to stay on top of or you're going to end up having a bad call from the butcher. I just don't look forward to the day that one of Delilah's offspring doesn't meet the potential. You're going to have some kind of temper tantrum. I, I, I will. But and, and at this point... You know, the big red cow, We call her name is Delilah. She's the big D4 cow. We have, we have been very lucky that her offspring have been as good as they have. I know at some point in time, no matter what we do, she will have some bad ones. And hopefully, they're not terrible. Well, how many different sires have we put her with now? So uh, Eight, yeah. nine. Nine yeah. sires now. So, I mean... We're, we're bound to hit a, a dud. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing I tell people. I go, when we have a problem, we evaluate it and go, is this a once in a, a once in a breeding problem, or is this a problem with what we did in matching dire sires and dams? So if there's two, you know, usually I run the the, the quantum of a three. If we have three problems, we don't ever use the sire again for that dam. Now it doesn't mean that sire isn't good for another dam we have in the herd. But for that dam, she, yeah. she's the no genetics longer. don't match, don't work for them both for some reason, right? Yeah, and, and who knows why, right? Genetics are weird. But like I was, I was saying earlier, you have to set your own standard. You have to set your own what you're willing to sell people. Then you have to make it a brand and stand by that brand and hold to your standard, like you're holding on to the last dollar that you had in your life. Because at some point in time, all you're going to be known by in the industry is the kind of cattle you produce and if those cattle are making other people money. Don't breed mean cattle, wild cattle, crazy cattle. They don't do well in feedlot. If, the, if somebody wants to buy a crazy cow you have and put her out on 5,000 acres of ground and never touch her again... I might consider selling one like that. But I wasn't going to, I will never sell one to another breeder. If you want to put it on 5,000 acre angel on it, she might get eaten by a grizzly bear or something, and, and you really don't care. I will sell you one for a discounted price for that. But the problem is, is then, then if you put that crazy one in your feedlot program, you've got a wound up critter in your feedlot program. Winding everybody else up. and Winding everybody else up. And dressing their quarters all out. So, you know, you end up having to pen them short somewhere else away from the rest of the pens and feeding them a little differently and killing them early. Just get them out of the system, but don't sell them to some poor guy. Don't sell them to some guy who's trying to start a business because it's going to bankrupt him fixing fences. Yeah, don't, don't sell your problem just to get rid of your problem and hand it off to somebody else. And I guess I understand that you spent thousands of dollars on it, right? I get that. But it's still not okay to screw somebody else. I have offered to buy cattle back from people who said the animal's not as good, you know, didn't have the temperament they were looking at. And it's weird, as soon as you offer to buy them back, how quickly people are super happy with the calf. Usually because that poor animal was wound up when they, you know, you put them in a trailer, you drove them however many hours, you let them out in a new location, and all of their friends are gone. They're going to be a little bit stressed and high-tempered. Give them a week or two to calm down. Feed them some grain. Talk to them. Be, you know, be a good Give steward. them a buddy. 
Give them a buddy. Do not single pen them. I've had to teach Delane that at the kill pens. Do not single pen animals because it causes stress. They have to have a buddy. The buddy system is how we bring animals into our, our facility, essentially. They got to have a buddy. Like, I don't care if you bring two or one guy brings one and the other guy brings one. We bring them and pin them so that they have a friend. So I'm going to leave you with the last piece of advice for this whole fun, long butcher shop to I want you guys to treat your butcher when you go visit a new one or looking for one as if you were a boss and they were interviewing for your clientele base there you're interviewing them to see if you are going to give them the job the important job of taking all your time and effort and and expense and blending it into a final product that you're happy to produce to whoever you sell it to and steve with that if they're excited and interested and just show the exuberation that they need exuberance they need that you know they're going to do well but if they could give you that the impression i could care less you don't want them anyway yeah you don't want that and i will tell you this if they haven't cut wagyu before expect some bumps in the road but as long as they're honest and upfront about it you can work with about anybody yeah if they're willing to learn yeah, and here's the thing. If, the, if you, they ask you, hey, what's this? How do you cut this? You look at them and go, there's a very good asset in America called YouTube. You can find whatever you want on YouTube. And they will properly show you how to cut the, the piece of meat out. And you can watch it numerous times and have your help watch it numerous times to be able to get it done right. I think Lane has learned a lot about Wagyu off of YouTube lately when a chef asks for things that we just don't do. Well, we don't do very often. So. Yeah. yeah. Or Lane, or, you know, it's like we sold some steamships at one point in time. Steamboats? Yeah, steamboats. An entire round cut so that they can carve it off at, at a big at a big dinner. Like a, a big roasted leg of Wagyu. You know, it takes, you have to look, you have to see how people are doing it so that you can replicate what's going on so that the chef's happy. So, I want you to remember this. Your end product is what someone will see every single day. And if you want them to have a good, happy response to you every single time, please make sure that your end product is done to your standard of, of perfection. And not a lesser one, if you can help it. I'm going to leave you with that. Have a good rest of your week. Here's at What's New in Wagyu. Sometimes her morning cough is way too strong. And sometimes what she says, she says all wrong. But right or wrong, she's there beside me like only a friend would be. And that's close enough to perfect for me Now she's been known to wear her pants too tight And drinking puts her out just like a lie Heaven knows she's not an angel 
but she'd really like to be. And that's close enough to perfect for me. She kisses me each morning and smiles a sleepy smile. She don't have to say it, I can see it in her eyes. Don't you worry about my woman or what you think she ought to be. She's close enough to perfect for me. down and starts to cry But then again a lady has arrived She's everything I've ever wanted She's all I'll ever need She's close enough to perfect for me She kisses me each morning Smiles a sleepy smile She don't have to say it I can see it in her eyes Don't you worry about my woman Or what you think she ought to be She's close enough to perfect for me